Thomas. Good morning, church. Thanks for uh, being here with us today. Um, I appreciate it a great deal. Uh, this morning, uh, before we dive into our text, which Thomas just read, I just wanted to uh, say a couple things. Uh, one, uh, first of all, we've had a, uh, a lot of visitors here lately, and so I just want to welcome you uh, if you're a visitor, and thank you for being here with us this morning. Um, I did want to say, if, if you're new, um, you're joining with us, maybe, you know, this is just your first couple times, um, sometimes it can be hard at a new church to just understand exactly what's going on, what are ways to connect, how do I get my questions answered, so I just wanted to point you to to, uh, one, we have a little bag with some information for you. We also have these Connect cards. And if you fill one of these Connect cards out, I'll give you a call and just offer to buy you a cup of coffee or buy you lunch and just tell you a little bit about who we are and make sure that all your questions are answered. So if for nothing else, you just want a free cup of coffee or a free lunch, fill out one of these cards and I would be glad to do that. Um, a second thing that I wanted to tell you a little bit about is our resource wall. We've made a little change to our resource wall over here. Um, so we have some books hanging on the wall, and those are books that we uh, just feel like are valuable for discipleship that we wanted to put before you. Um, on the wall, there is a little QR code where we have a suggested donation of $5 for any of those books. I promise you, every one of those books costs probably double that, if not more. Um, but we're not trying to make money off that wall. It's just a way that we can continue uh, filling it up to provide you valuable resources. So there's some great books over there. If you're interested, there's just a simple QR code on the wall now where you can make that donation on our website if you'd like. And then we also have resource books on the table that are just a free gift to you um, if you would like to take one of those. We have a couple of resources on the resource wall that I just wanted to point out. Um, one is the, possibil the possibility of prayer, um, where it is about, uh, it says this, but the life of prayer is neither efficient nor productive. Instead, as we learn in the Psalms, prayer calls us to wait, to watch, to listen, to taste, and to see. These things are not productive by any modern measure, but they are transformative. This is just an excellent book on why, the motivation behind why we come to the Father, why we pray. Um, and then this, Praying with the Psalms, uh, kind of could go with that. It's written by Eugene Peterson, and it's just a really short daily devotional on a single psalm uh, to take you through the year. So these are just two books on that resource wall I highly suggest, both of which cost a lot more than $5 that are available to you if that would be helpful. This morning, uh, we are going to continue our second week in our uh, sermon series, which we have creatively titled Hebrews. Um, in the, this sermon series, we're just going to be walking through the book of Hebrews for the next eight months, um, just diving into the depth of the knowledge of the supremacy of Christ. So um, I am excited to tell you that the King has a message for you this morning, and I am um, glad and humbled to be able to bring it before you, uh, Christians. Uh, I'm going to pray for our time, and then we'll dive in and look at uh, the book of Hebrews. Lord, thank you for this day and for the opportunity to come together as God's people and um, to uh, offer our prayers and our songs to you, to offer our attention to you. Um, Lord, I thank you uh, for the gift of your word um, that, uh, that we now um, have your word through your son. Um, Lord, might we take the word that you bring before us this morning knowing fully that it is directly a word from you to us. Might we take that word um, and consider it deeply and let it do its work in our heart that we might be changed. Um, Lord, I ask um, that you would do these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. I acknowledge that we are fully dependent on you um, for any kind of change uh, that is meaningful to take place um, within our soul. And so we ask um, that by your power you would do such things this day. 
And we ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. If you weren't here with us last week, last week we dove in to chapter 1 and we just looked at the first three verses of chapter 1 because the first three verses are chocked full of deep, rich truths. We learned, just in intro, that the author of Hebrews is unknown, but that what is known is that this is a letter written to the church and it was written to the church both then and now. It was written to all of God's people and in this letter, Christians are reminded that centuries of God's faithfulness and action in the Old Testament were ultimately and completely pointing to Jesus Christ. And God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But for all of us now who live post-resurrection, which puts us all in the same days, the church that read this letter the first time and the church now here in this place, we all exist post-resurrection and thus we live in what is called the last days. And for all of us in this time, God has spoken ultimately to us the word through his son, Jesus, that being the word of the gospel. In the first three verses of Hebrews, we see the entire storyline of the gospel on display, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and we see Christ in his fullness as creator, redeemer, and king. We started off last week and are going to continue this week with considering the person, the majesty of Jesus. And on that note, I want to point out something for a moment. When developing a proper Christology, that meaning a theology of Christ, we must consider both the person and the work of Jesus. One of the reasons that Hebrews is so important is because of its focus on the person of Christ, that being who Jesus is. Often in the church, we tend to lean heavily into the works of Christ. And this starts at a young age in Sunday school. We learn about the water to wine. We, lock, we, we learn about walking on water, healing the sick. All of these things are incredibly important and in Scripture, and thus we should bring them forward. Yet his miraculous works can only be properly understood in light of who who he is. He is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. In Jesus, we see the glory of God put on display in fullness. And through the gospel of Jesus, we see the world's only hope. And it's for that reason, this morning, starting in verse 4, that we see that the name of the Son is superior to all other names. Verse 4 says this, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Starting in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4, the author wants the church to see the supremacy of Christ in relation to angels. Now, I think if we're honest today, this seems like a strange premise. You could be hard-pressed to find a Christian who doesn't know that Christ is superior to angels. This seems like somewhat of a strange stance to have to take. However, during this historical time period, this was not as obvious as we might feel that it is now. Today, you could just put something else in place of angels that we tend to think of as superior to Christ. But then, this was a complicated thing amongst the church. Literature from the period between the Old and New Testament shows us that people devoted a great deal of study and attention to angels, many even worshiping angels. Many Jews saw angels as both God's messengers and ultimately as Israel's protectors. 
But God wants his people to see that Jesus is far greater than any other person or being in which they may have placed their hope in previously. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on Hebrews, says this, The Jews venerated angels because of their place in the giving of the law. And it was essential that Jewish, Jewish Christians should learn by this comparison something of the infinite superiority of our Lord over those heavenly beings that held so prominent a place in Jewish life. And here in this text we see that among the multitude of reasons why Christ is superior to the angels, the one maybe perhaps most prominent is that he has received a name that is superior to theirs. They are servants and messengers, but Christ has been given the name Son. Now we must clarify that Jesus has always been the Son. What's being said here in Hebrews is not that this is a new thing, not that he's just now becoming the Son, he's just been given that title. What this does mean, what does it mean that he has thus inherited a name? Paul describes this inheritance in his introduction to the book of Romans. It says this in Romans verse 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul, set apart by the gospel of the Lord, which was promised beforehand by the prophets. It's almost like a perfect introduction to the Hebrews. To Hebrews, He says, considering his son who descended from David and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Verse 2 there makes clear that Christ has never ceased to be God, but the name bestowed on him is the name of the one who was identified long ago, who the prophets spoke of and promised. The promised son, the Messiah. The fulfillment of this, the promise that was made by God, the son above all sons. At the resurrection, his superior name as the messianic son of God, Messiah, was affirmed. And this is why verses 5 and 6 show us that the worship of the son is superior to all lesser worship. And verses 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is an Old Testament quote from Psalm 2-7, which says, I will tell of the decree to the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The word begotten could be interpreted as emphasizing one and only, one and only son. Yet it also indicates something much more than that. It communicates the equality of the father and the son, their shared nature, their shared being. The worship of Jesus is superior to those of the angels because it is worship directed to God. Or again, it says here in this verse in Hebrews, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Like the previous statement, this too is a quote directly from the Old Testament. Let's stop and take a look at that. That's in 2 Samuel 7.14. That's the verse being quoted right here. In 2 Samuel 7.14, it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, 
I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. This Old Testament verse is pretty incredible when we consider the weight of it. In this verse, we see in 2 Samuel, we see a prophecy being made to David. And this prophecy seems pretty straightforward. And it would be fulfilled at the birth of David's son Solomon, who many of us are aware of. Yet that, the birth of Solomon, was only a partial fulfillment. It was the imperfect part of the fulfillment of the promise being made here. Because as the prophecy suggests, Solomon would not be perfect. He would be far from it. Yet in a more distant and perfect sense, this promise would be fulfilled in the son of David, that being Jesus Christ, the perfect son. What do these quotes, these texts each teach us? Number one, the father was always talking about his son. From the beginning of time all the way through, the point of the Old Testament is to make much of and to point God's people to Jesus. And number two, he is superior to the angels and that the Lord has called him his son. He is the son of God. The noble master is good to his hirelings. But make no mistake, the kindness of the master to the hirelings that work for him pales in comparison to the glory of his own son. When his son is born, he passes out the It's a Boy cigars, and he invites all of his crew to come and celebrate the birth of his son. This is the Rodney Standard version of verse, verse 6, which says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In verse 6, we see a little bit of this distinction put on display. That there is a glory that is beheld in Jesus Christ that the Lord calls the angels to come and behold. And they are eager to do so and offer their superior worship. On the night that he was born, the angels worshiped. And they announced the good news that the promised king was here. And they did so. Because as verses 7 and 12 show us, the throne of the Son is superior to all other thrones. Let's read verses 7 and 12 as we walk through this text. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. Stop right there for just a second. Here in verse 8, once again, we see the Old Testament quoted. Psalm 45, 6 through 7 is directly quoted. Don't even need to read it again. That's exactly what that is. And the author is bringing forth profound evidence for the supremacy of the Son, that being that he is God. He is man, and he is the Messiah God King. Yet in a profoundly beautiful mystery, in verse 9, God is called his God. It says, therefore God, thy God, had anointed, hath anointed thee. God is his God. And he is God. Jesus is no ordinary man, to say the least. He is no ordinary king. 
He is eternal. His throne is superior and shall have no end because though he, see, he submits to the Father while yet not ever failing to be God, he is the fullness of God, his very being put on display. No ordinary king, no ordinary throne, eternal in all his ways. His throne is superior. And in verse, starting in verse 10, we see that it shall have no end where it says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. We see Jesus is the perfect king because he is the very king that was there that spoke all things into being. He has been, from the beginning, God's plan to redeem his people in need of salvation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his, but everlasting joy in Christ Jesus. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Surely, we, many of us feel the weight of wearing out like a garment, slowly but surely, with each passing day. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. In this way, not only is the throne of Jesus superior to all other thrones, but the reign of the Son is superior to all other reigns. He is superior to all other who will ever stand on this earth and declare authority over the people. There are surely kings and presidents and those to follow, but all of their reigns will pale triumphantly in comparison to the reign of the Son, whose reign will never cease to be. In verses 13 and 14, we see this. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? As we consider these final verses, I want to consider a couple of things. Number one, Jesus is back at the right hand. That's where uh, Hebrews 1 started. That's where we ended last week in verse 3. And the author circles right back to this magnificent truth. The reign of the sun is superior because it is an appointed reign. It was the plan from all time that God would make a way for his people to be redeemed, to be brought back to him through Christ. That the king himself would step out of heaven, would step out of glory, would move into the neighborhood, would live among us, would in every way sympathize with our weaknesses and our heartaches, but would do so without sin, without ever breaking the law of God, and thus would make himself the perfect lamb the one who could go before the Father and offer propitiation for our sins. He is the perf perfect one, the one whose reign was appointed from the very beginning. And his reign is just. We know little of perfect justice. It's why we often struggle with some of the realities of the gospel. We were talking this morning, we had our pastoral residency meeting, and we were kind of talking about this dynamic that all people wrestle typically in one way or another with the gospel. We're either prone towards legalism, which means we're prone to kind of make light of our, we, we don't really see ourselves as that sinful, we're not really that bad, and we embrace the mercy of God because he probably should be mercy, merciful with me. 
mean, I didn't really do anything to begin with, you know? Like, when that's our heart, we tend to lean into legalism. If I can just, because I'm not really that bad, surely I can meet the standards, I can check the boxes, and I can kind of earn this thing. And in that situation, I'm kind of more like a taxpayer <laughs> than a sinner. I mean, I've paid my debts, so God kind of owes me this thing, and that begins to be how I operate. For others, they're on the far opposite end of the spectrum. They fully, they as deeply as they can, they understand their brokenness, and there is just no way God could be gracious enough to forgive this. There is no way God could forgive me. He is made small because my hurt and my sorrow and my brokenness is so big. And in that case, I'm not prone to legalism because what's the point? It makes so sense. I'm well aware I can't check the boxes, so I lean into license. I might as well just live the way that I want to, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. The truth of the gospel is something far more glorious than either of those false deceptions. Our God is perfectly holy. And as a God who is perfectly holy, he will, he will, he will not let sin come. Sin cannot enter his presence. And he is also perfectly just. So sin will not be tolerated. But he is also perfectly loving. And perfect holiness, perfect love, perfect justness, these are concepts this side of eternity we can only begin to scratch the surface of. And the only way we can even scratch that surface is because we see that complete picture of God on display in the gospel. He did not disregard sin, but the debt was paid. He is perfectly just. He demanded a payment for that which must be paid. Perfect justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a lamb for a lamb. And Jesus is that perfect lamb. Our small, our small stubbornness, our, our anger, our small what seems like a small disobedience before the Father has put us an eternity away from perfect holiness. I use the analogy over and over again. It's as if, if you and I met on the coast of California to see who could swim the fastest to Hawaii, you might make it a mile out there. I might make it 200 feet out there. We're both an eternity away from the destination. We are both equally in need of rescue. The truth of the gospel is that for both, God has provided that rescue through his strong arm, which is Jesus Christ, the final word regarding salvation. His reign is appointed, his reign is just, and his reign is eternal. I don't know about you, I don't like to get super political, but in my lifetime, kind of the political feel of the country we live in, it kind of just flip-flops. It switches back and forth every four to eight years. Like, it's kind of disorienting. Like, which, which way do we do things now? And does it, it can be hard to know the point because it feels like it's just going to switch back. And it's worth investing in. It's worth caring about. I'm not saying that. But the reign of Jesus is not like such things. He is not swayed back and forth. There is no flip-flop. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his kingdom will know no end. Jesus reigns in glory. He will step down from his throne once again to fight the final battle against all who oppose him, and Revelation tells us that an army of angels will follow him into this final battle. This is what angels do. They're not intended to be worshipped. They're intended to make much of Jesus as is all of God's perfect gifts. In the time that this was written, the church needed to take the view of angels down several pegs. They lived in an age and in a culture where humans tended to elevate the supernatural to worship, and that's still the case in many parts of the world. 
but not here. In some ways, we live in an age and in a culture where we tend to do the opposite. We tend to brush past these kind of realities because if we're honest, they make us uncomfortable and we do not want to talk about them in front of people that we know. If, it's not, if there's not an app for it, we're reluctant to think much about it or believe that it exists. And for that reason, I want to wrap this, test, this text by emphatically acknowledging that angels are real and they serve a glorious purpose. In verse 14, the final verse of this chapter says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It can be easy to disregard the reality of angels. Um, I feel like I grew up in an era where angels, maybe this, isn't the, maybe this has always been like this, but I feel like when I was growing up, angels were particularly commercialized. They were either presented as like kind of this flawed but ultimately pretty hip spiritual being. I'm thinking John Travolta, Nick Cage. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. You remember those movies? Michael, City of Angels, you know what I'm talking about. That was either, like, there were so many, like, angel TV shows and movies when I was a kid, and they were all kind of the same character. Um, you know, that was either the thing, or they were neither of those things, and they were more like what my grandma showed me about angels. They were the total opposite. They were these cute, like, chubby little floating baby beings. Um, we live, five, like, five miles away from the epicenter of that idea. <laughs> Okay, like that was kind of our idea of angels. These distortions, though, both of them, are far from the truth. The truth is far more profound. In Scripture, when an angel shows up on the scene, people fall down. They put their face in the dirt in fear as they are overcome by just this slight glimpse of the majesty of God. Consider the arrival of the angels before the shepherds in Luke 2.9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. When an angel shows up, it's just like a sliver. It's like he's kind of blocking the way, like just so that just the sliver of the glory of the Lord is put on display, and people are overcome with awe and even fright. These were not chubby babies, but magnificent servants of the Lord created to reveal just a hint of his majesty, just enough to move man to a posture of awe so that he might receive the Lord's message that the angel had for him. Angels were created by God, and they exist to fulfill his purposes. Angels are seen in Scripture as witnesses to major events that surround the redemption of God's people. Think of the example of the birth of Christ. But the Old Testament also gives us many examples of them carrying out God's justice. One angel is given a sword, and he's tasked with blocking the entrance to the Garden of Eden and taking vengeance on any who would seek to disregard God and come to it again. And another two are tasked with destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And here in this final text, Hebrews 1.14, we see that the angels now, they're tasked with working for the good of the church. That's what God has called them to do in these days, persevering and working on behalf of those who have received salvation in Christ is what the angels are tasked with doing as he, they seek to um, guard and uh, fight for the good of those who are awaiting the glorious return of our perfect king. Now, how this plays out, I have no idea. And I would not begin to write a screenplay on that premise because I, I do not know what that looks like. 
And it's probably not necessary or healthy for me to speculate on what that looks like too much. What I do know is that angels serve Christ, who reigns in glory and desires that they minister to his people whom he loves and whom he gave himself up for. This is the gospel, the promise of God, long awaited but revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ for you. Perhaps a great summary of Hebrews 1, in closing, can be found in 1 Peter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. As I read this text, I just invite you for a moment. I know we're coming to the end here, but bear with me. I just want to ask you for a moment to consider this text carefully. Starting in verse 10 of 1 Peter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have been now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels Long to look. This is speaking of the good news of the gospel. Today, I'm sure most of many of us fall in this category. The whole country, it seems like, is eagerly awaiting uh, the Super Bowl. Well, everybody's excited. Maybe not so much people who live in Missouri, but in other places, believe it or not, they're still excited about the Super Bowl. They're excited uh, to watch as you know, 22 men run back and forth across the field and throw, you know, footballs to each other and how a bunch of hip-hop artists who, let's be real, man, we're outside of the prime now, seek to do something. Like, people are excited about it because it's what we have, all right? But for the angels who dwell in glory, who have witnessed God's pursuit of you firsthand, they have witnessed the Father pursue you, they have witnessed the Son advocate on behalf of you, they were there when he came in glory as a baby, they were there through all of this, watching redemptive history unfold, they know nothing of such things. Nothing in all of creation compares to the gospel, the thing upon, the truth upon which angels long to look the gospel is so glorious and good that these angelic beings who dwell in glory desire nothing else but to just see this full unfold nothing in all of creation compares to the gospel when we were looking at verse five um, as we uh, as we were uh, starting off and we were looking at verse five i made a couple of points as to why Christ was superior to the angels. My second point was that he is superior to the angels and that the Lord has called him his son. This morning, as I as we prepare to send you out here um, shortly, brothers and sisters, I, I want to remind you that if you are in Christ, he calls you by that same name. Like, how glorious is that? The point of this is the superiority of the Son over the angels, but the name that is stated as the case for which he is superior is the same name which, because of the Son, he now calls you. I want you to just leave this place basking in the glory of that magnificent truth. For the Christian, like the angels, and to an eternity degree further, this truth 
should trump all other truths. This truth upon which angels long to dwell. That being the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. There will be dark days ahead. There will be hard circumstances. Uh, Dustin talked about that full well. Nothing else is promised to the Christian. If anybody ever tells you that following Jesus is some kind of assurance of prosperity or good times, they know little of the man Jesus who was homeless, who had who depended on others to provide, uh, to provide food and shelter, who was ultimately neglected and abandoned by his closest friends. Nothing about Jesus teaches a, a, a salvation Nothing teaches a health or wealth gospel. Nothing about him. But the truth of who he is, upon which angels long to look, is our promise and assurance, our truth in the midst of all of those times that we encounter. The promise of God because of Jesus is Romans 8 tells us that for those who are his, all things are working together for our glory, conforming us to his image. That for those of us who belong to him, because of what he has done for us, everything you experience in this life is working together for your good. Because even in the most difficult of circumstances, much like those who were brought to their knees before the angels appearing, often it's the most difficult circumstances in life that bring you to your knees and allow you to rightly see the glory of the gospel that perhaps you were not, you were prone to neglect just moments before. All things are working together for our good because of the gospel. I want to leave you with uh, this quote this morning from Ray Ortland regarding this promise of God, the gospel. Perhaps um, this quote is the gospel invitation that every pastor needs to present the congregation each Sunday. Um, the beginning of this quote is uh, particularly relevant. I am a complete idiot. My future is very bright. Anyone can get in on this. And that church is the power of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Acts 2.39, for this promise is for you, it's for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Will you pray with me this morning?